This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Dr. Christine Gederick. Christine is a fellow of the American Board of Family Medicine, an associate professor at Rutgers University, and author of the new book, A Nation of Unwell, What's Gone Wrong? At her practice in New Jersey, she has spent over a decade recovering thousands of patients with chronic illnesses. She's the kind of doctor people turn to when they feel like they've tried everything but still have no answers. Today she explains the science behind how the environment impacts our toxic load and what we can do to reverse some of the damage. We talk about how intricately linked our microbiome is to both our immunity and our mental health. And she shares the key foods and herbal remedies that she recommends to all her patients. Christine is a brilliant and very forward-thinking mind, and it was a pleasure to get to talk to her. So let's get to my chat with Dr. Christine Gedrick. Nice to meet you. Oh my gosh, I've been hearing about you for years from so many of your patients. <laughs> I hope good things. I've referred people to you, and um, I follow your work, and I just I think you're Pretty amazing. So anyway, I'm really happy that you're joining us today. Well, I suppose I would like to start with, well, you're obviously an MD. You went to Harvard. You're on the board, of the American board of the, is it the family practice, et cetera. So you're a highly accredited person, very well respected. And somehow it seems that you've developed this practice. It's really treating people with chronic illness, which is in my experience anyway, not something that Western doctors do with great gusto, right? It's like they want the end in sight. And so I'm wondering how, just if you could tell me a little bit about 
how you, with all of your amazing, illustrious background and degrees, how did you become the doctor that people kind of came to when they had tried it all and they were they were willing to really try something radically different for their chronic illnesses? So I was a big pharma baby. I'm born 71, so grew up tons of antibiotics, didn't know. So my mom was very natural in that she fed us very well. Like we got a lot of vegetables and wholesome food, but there wasn't an understanding of, there couldn't be back then of what triggers might be. So I was drinking milk and I had asthma and sinus infections. And there were some simple things that should have been, or could have been done, I would say that might've made a big difference in my health trajectory. But that being said, it was pharmaceuticals that really allowed me to live my life. So I was very grateful for them very much in that model and never, I mean, I don't even think when I was in medical school that I drank water. I think I just drank coffee and diet Coke. (laughs) I was terrible. And so my diet was terrible. I was under so much stress and I, I matched in plastics. I got like the one spot in the city that was available the year that I, I mean, that was a huge, huge accomplishment to go from Jefferson to Cornell because that really had never happened. And so any surgical resident is under a lot of stress, right? So I started to break down and I started getting headaches and then I got an ulcer and then I got this. And then I got, I mean, it was just like a typical list of stuff that can happen when no one's really overseeing the whole picture. And it, there was basically a near fatal combination and I ended up in the ICU and it was just like a big hot mess. So with that, I had to really just, I had to take medical leave. I was just messed up. I mean, messed up. And I went to a holistic physician, but I went kicking and screaming. I mean, I was not happy about the idea that I was going to go see a whole, like how, how is a holistic doctor going to fix me when I've been at Cornell and Columbia and like the best of have just failed. Right. And how, who brought you to this? It was my, my parents just knew his, so very unusual and, and probably in you know, more the spiritual realm and angel because of how he intersected in my life and just totally turned me around. He was an older man at the time. He himself had been kind of the internist to the governor and all of the top executives in New Jersey. And he had five children and one of his children developed, I believe I have this right, but one of his sons developed schizophrenia. And rather than put him in a hospital forever, he committed himself to understanding the the nutrition needed to help the brain get healthy again. So he is still known with two contemporaries that did all of this orthomolecular vitamin supplementation. He's one of the first people that brought attention. There was a BioBrain Institute in Princeton and Carl Pfeiffer wrote, he in this, this book, Mental and Elemental Nutrients. And it's fascinating. It talks about and so, so apropos to what we're seeing today, like, which is a whole different conversation with mental health today. Mm-hmm. But anyway, to get back to the story, he took one long listen to my whole situation and basically projected what was going to happen in terms of my recovery. I mean, he listened and he closed my file and he said, I'm going to tell you what's happened and I'm going to tell you what you need to do to get better. And everything he told me was right. <laughs> it what was amazing. you? So the biggest problem was that I was not only hypothyroid, but I had the bad conversion where I wasn't circulating any thyroid hormone. So they didn't have me on the right kind of supplementation. And I'm 
basically tall and thin. I've been that way my whole life. So no one would ever think that I was hypothyroid because you think of that when someone's telling you that they can't lose weight, but the opposite was me. I mean, I couldn't keep it on. So there, they would never. So once he did that blood test and he fixed my thyroid, that it, it, I, I honestly can tell you, I remember that day I, I was Fixed Going with for, like Synthroid or fixed with vitamins? No, he gave me the active one. He gave me Cytomel. And I was this very small set of patients. And then I moved over to Armour and more natural ones in time. Right. But once he put me on that, it was probably 48, 72 hours. I went out for a walk and it was like the lights went back on. I mean, everything from there started to fall into place. But I had to change my diet. He he figured out I had all these food sensitivities. I had to take gluten out. I had to take dairy out. That was causing my headaches. And this was I, what year? Right after Y2K. I got sick right around 2000, 2001. So, so pretty early in the trajectory of like cultural acceptance of functional medicine, et cetera. Oh, no, it wasn't <laughs> there at all. Right. And, you know, I have had... I have had every crap taken on my back, basically. I mean, you get the worst of, you get the worst of it in this field. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate. Even just writing about it, we get, especially back in the early days, we used to get a ton of crap for writing about any kind of alternate alternative modality, et cetera. So then, so then what did that spark in you? What was the kind of synapse when you witnessed your own healing that made you want to go? integrative or functional? Do you describe yourself? Do you characterize yourself as that sort of MD? I do, but I would say at this point, it's really moved into what I call more precision medicine, like really studying the epigenetics of patients, the biome, the microbiome. We have some, we have some assays we've been working on in house to develop. And that's really, that's the way to split the difference between the left and the right side right now. Meaning if we can get the science to support I don't care what therapy you want to use. If you have data that shows what the problem was and the fact that the problem is now fixed, it doesn't matter whether you used an herb or a pharmaceutical, if you're open to that idea, because the data sort of speaks for itself. So my focus since I returned and it took some, it, there were a couple other little roadblocks in returning. So first I thought I was just going to leave medicine and go into business and do venture capital or something. I said, I'm not going to practice medicine anymore. And then this woman, I was out at dinner and had prepared for the GMATs. I, I was about to take the GMATs. I had prepared my business school applications. And this woman just slid out of her chair and started to go into a, she was diabetic and she started to slip into a, like a coma, like a hypoglycemic episode. And I didn't even think, I just jumped up and started to resuscitate her. And I, it was like that moment that brought everything kind of full circle. And I realized that I needed to go back and, and show that there was true science behind what recovery looked like. And that is what the missing piece has been because the two sides can, the conventional approach can wage war on the integrative approach, but the data is what's, what, speaks for itself. And then the argument gets lost because, and, and, and that's, what's been missing. Could you tell me a little bit about some of those courses of treatment that you've seen that are alternative that even though they, they might be anecdotal in your practice that you're collecting data on that shows how effective some of these things are? 
Yeah, there's certain kinds of detoxification strategies that we use. There's certain kinds of IVs. I trained in Germany. I learned a lot of my methodology from there. Even things that people don't really want to talk about, colonics, there's a very safe way to do it. There's two different kinds of colonics in the world and the open system is very safe. So these are, we use intravenous ozone, not that there's different kinds of ozone. So any one of these things really needs to be very carefully outlined. There's a type of ozone that's been well established in terms of risk benefit and safety, I should say. And that's major autologous. There's a hyperbaric type. The type that falls into question at times is direct intravenous. So, so knowing which therapy we're speaking of and, and what's being used. But in my world, it all boils down to two main issues. One are the toxins, or one is the toxins that are influencing the epigenetics of the cell and the mitochondria. It's all about the mitochondria. And that's what the science is showing us. Everything we can do to keep our bodies clean and keep the mitochondria optimized So this is where things have come full circle. So 10, 15 years ago, when you wanted to be organic and you were just a woo-woo, right, for thinking that, now we understand that these, and there's ways to test, to see toxins, where they're influencing our intercellular elements. And so we've just crossed a massive divide in the last 10, 15 years, ever since we started studying the microbiome. So I research all of this all the time, and then I can sort of see these connections in a patient's case. So let, let's give an example. They, they could have had, and they don't, you don't think of these terms, like all too often I'll find out the inception of someone's illness was after they had an installation done in their home. If you inhale the chemicals that are in there and you have a system that's already potentially susceptible and you're not getting outside the home and you're not sweating and you're not exercising, you have no way to get those chemicals out that's when start, stuff can start to fall back towards a chronic state. And it's putting these kinds of pieces together in somebody's history to sort of see where you know, to go. In that case, it's a chronic state because the chemical causes inflammation in the body and then it's just like a feedback. Yeah. yeah. And so that, that then brings us to the other piece. So the one piece is the toxins in the, in the different cellular elements that are affected by them. And then the other piece is the microbiome and what's happening in the gut with different infections that can be identified there. And again, there's just, science has come very far, but we have so much farther to go. I mean, we could talk for a long time about basically a re-understanding of what an infection means because people think they have to have a fever and classic signs of whatever it might be we're hosting 37 trillion bacteria in us at any time. So it's more about like this balancing act and keeping the biome healthy. And Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spot in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, 
you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What are the things that we can do to kind of help optimize our body's own detoxification pathways? Because the you know, people will say when we talk about, hey, it's time for detox on goop. And let's think about doing these. And people are like, your body detoxes itself. There's no need to do a detox. So what what do you say to that? Okay, (laughs) I could say a lot to that. Yes, it does. But it's a balancing act, right? We can surpass our detox pathways. That's just a known phenomenon. And there's also lesser understood is that there's a prioritization. So we are always dealing with, I say this almost every day in visits. When a patient gets sick and they have active infection, their body is going to preferentially put its detoxification efforts towards the infectious debris and addressing what is a live threat to the organism versus a static threat, which represents toxins in the food and the water supply and personal care products. Those get sequestered. And probably the best understanding or writing about this is something called the cell danger response by Bob Naveau, who's done beautiful, beautiful work on the way the mitochondria control this. So it all boils down to the biochemistry of the cell. So certain things that can go off and then the body is doing one thing versus another. And you can't depend that the body is going to detoxify spontaneously. You could overwhelm the pathways. And then does the body store these toxins in fat cells? Mm -hmm. That's one way. Gwent, the the main space of the body that holds the toxins is the extracellular matrix or ECM. And it's studied. It's it's a very, very vital portion of our tissue. It's basically everything outside the cell. So when I lecture on this, I describe our bodies as like a sponge. The cells are the holes and the the matrix is the tissue of the sponge. And so when a patient has been sick for a long time, oftentimes we are starting before any type of real treatment with just detoxification to get, it's like the idea of cleaning up the kitchen counter with a big spill. You're going to go across half and have to go wash the sponge out before you can get the other half up. That is exactly what happens to our bodies. It gets chock full of toxins and there's ways to test for this. And then that's what you have to start working on in order to get the flow back in the system. What kind of tests, give me the whole battery of tests that you give to somebody who's coming in to see you with some kind of chronic illness? So we look at all of the standard labs. So that's one thing that's very important because I want to represent the most academic approach to my work so that I'm not doing specialty tests at the expense of the standard tests. And I will have to tell you every, probably every day that I'm with patients, I will find standard medical tests that have not been interpreted properly. It could be anything from diabetes to thyroid disease, to fatty liver, to there's a hereditary hemochromatosis, which is an iron storage disease. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you the number of patients I've found that have chronic he- headaches because of this genetic issue that's never been tested for. 
So there's so much medicine that goes on. And then there are some proprietary assays that we've worked on that we're developing to bring them to clinical recognition. So those, and then we overlay other tests that look at toxins and some of the epigenetics. So it's like a whole battery of stuff that's different from what you would normally get. And are you looking at the standard range of the Western blood test or the functional range? I would say probably the, the easiest way to be answered would probably be the functional range. So my eye is refined around what I think the ratio or the range should be. Thyroid is a classic one, right? There's a tighter range than what might normally be expected. But, and I, and the other thing I'm doing too is I process so much data that I, I, the way my mind works is I see statistical likelihood and I see statistical relevance. So if I start to see something that isn't going in the right direction, that points me to something going on with that particular patient that we need to dig further into figure out why. What types of chronic illnesses are you seeing the most? So I, unfortunately, have made my way out to the very far end of the branch around tremendous amounts of illness. I mean, I see things like neurodegenerative diseases. I have several patients with ALS that are under care. I have fourth stage cancer, pancreatic cancer. And and gratefully, these patients are all doing relatively well, which is amazing. So I'm delighted. But those put years or take years off. It's hard to manage that degree of of illness and try to really come up with a game plan for how you think you're intervening in a way that's extending quality of life and quantity. The biggest wastebasket of what I get is the chronic fatigue, chronic Lyme, fibromyalgia, and then the sister to those are autoimmune diseases because the longer you've gone on with infection, the more likely you are to develop an autoimmune issue. In fact, the book that I'm working on now's original title was The Autoimmune Cure because we've worked so successfully with autoimmune diseases, but we're retitling it right now because it turns out when I was in the middle of working through the immunology of what actually drives an autoimmune reaction, the very tenets of it are so applicable to COVID that it's actually showing how we could have avoided a large part of this pandemic by understanding immunology so much better. And none of my patients have gone on to get very sick. I mean, I've had hundreds and they've, we've kept them all out of the hospital and all that. So I wanted to really offer that to the reader in a, in a very positive way. So anyway, the new title hasn't been settled on, but it'll be something along those lines. (laughs) You feel that maybe because the for lack of a better word, or to call out an old reference from, I forget which doctor, but that the kind of the soil of the body in your patients is more nutrient dense. Therefore the immune system works better. Like you're getting the pathways all working and functioning the way they're supposed to. So that theoretically the patient doesn't go down quite as hard with a virus like COVID. Yeah. The key, the the key with COVID, I believe is understanding the innate immune system and the the tools that we have to boost it. So all the natural supplements, there's a drug that's made a lot of popular acclaim lately, the ivermectin drug. I don't know if you've heard of that or not. And so our patients through the program, so that's another distinction too. 
kind of, there's like an algorithm that we follow. So we have a data analysis. There's a way of getting through the infections or inflammation in the biome. There's a bacterial layer, there's a fungal layer, there's a parasitic layer and knowing how to work through that and each kind of treatment I do is geared towards which layer is causing the most trouble. But as a result of that whole process, the innate immune system has generally been enhanced, improved, and that's by standard labs. So there's no disputing that. And so that's why I think the patients are faring much better with, with outcomes. How linked to the microbiome is our immune system? Completely, completely. They're one and the same. It's amazing. I mean, what whole different subject is what's happened to the children of today, right? That our, our biomes are just so unbelievably messed up. And I don't know how we get it back, to be honest. I mean, that's a whole different thought process around what does the future of our health look like, but we really have to figure out how to reboot the biome quickly, because if we keep going the way we are, we are going to erode it. And now there's questions of the impact 5G is having on the biome. Some researchers say that we're just going to obliterate the bacteria. I mean, this is really serious stuff. Jeez. (laughs) I know. I know. There's always an answer, right? I mean, every generation has its thing to think about. So I put it, I I tend to be a very grounded person in that there'll always be a way, but it's just, you're going to be tough waters to navigate. (laughs) What, what I did want to ask you about Lyme disease, because so you have so many chronic Lyme patients, or you have people who think they have Lyme or being treated for chronic Lyme and not getting better and come to you. And it turns out that they don't necessarily have Lyme. So how did you get to be the Lyme expert and how, what is Lyme and how do you treat it? (laughs) Oh, these are great questions. Um, So you can't practice integrative medicine in the North. I had no interest in practicing treating Lyme disease. It found me. So I put out my little shingle when I got married and just knew that I wanted to help people in a way that I hadn't been taught necessarily. I, I knew in my gut there was a way, but I started researching and studying all these new things about, and slowly patients one after another came slowly. And, and then what happened was I started getting my first line patients and they had different labs than I'd ever seen done before. And I researched all that. And I got involved with an organization called iLabs, which represents sort of the presence in this country to argue about Lyme disease, chronic Lyme, and then the use of antibiotics, et cetera. The issue that I ran into is I was an early adopter of the methodology, i.e. the antibiotic model, and it started to backfire in enough patients, i.e. they weren't better, they arguably felt worse, their chronic fatigue got worse, their gut blew up, they had candida issues. And I was like, okay, wait a minute, how many times am I going to do this before I realize that it's not working for everybody. And it would be a whole lot better to know at least who it isn't going to work for. So I don't do that again. And furthermore, what is the difference? If you have 10 patients to get better with an approach and eight don't better step back and go, wait a second, I need many more than that. So it was those thoughts that sort of pushed the ball along in terms of recovering the biome. And so then for a while, we would give antibiotics and then we quickly replace them with herbs. And then we'd work on the gut at the same time. It was more segmented. And then there was a confluence. And a lot of this is just because the research on the microbiome got us to a point where we could see things differently. 
the same way you treat infectious biofilm is the same way that you clear the microbiome. So the same principles, oral IV treatments, et cetera, were influencing both the biome and the immunology of the patient. So it's been maybe five years now since this whole, it really was a vision. I mean, it literally came to me as a vision. I almost drove off the road when I saw it. And I stopped my car and I thought about, I I didn't even know what to do. And then eventually I sort of settled with it. And then we've done a whole bunch of things in our clinic to, to work on the research behind it. But suffice it to say, from that point on, I, I really wouldn't say I have had a chronic Lyme patient since. I mean, it's just you can get, you can get it to go away. Let's put it that way. Wow. So it's, it's been great. I mean, it's been really great. And are these people kind of going through these treatments and then having a Western blot and seeing that they don't have Lyme? Yeah. So we take whatever the labs are when they get here and we put them through this algorithm of detoxification, restoring the microbiome. And then at the end of it, the labs will have to repeat whatever we had every once in a blue moon you can get an antibody that isn't going to resolve because there's a situation where the microbiome can have a certain kind of inflammation in it at the time of any infection, and it might not class switch the way the antibody might not shift. It is very rare that that happens. And the most important is that in those small subset of patients where that does happen, those patients don't feel sick. So we haven't had anybody that would argue that they've felt sick that we haven't been able to get them back to feeling well again. So it takes about six months, it takes about six months. And then the harder cases, and when I say harder, we have people coming in here that have been sick for 20 years. That's a nine month, maybe 12 month, but they're still better. And they go back and do what they want. That's amazing. Can you teach me a little bit about biofilm and what it is and how you break it down in order to treat these illnesses? I could talk all day about biofilms. So biofilms are basically formed. They're substances formed by bacteria or fungi. And the simplest version of it is when you go to a rock at a river edge, the slime on the rock, that is a biofilm that represents what's in that water system. The other analogy that I use with patients is when you have a glass of water and you leave it for a few days. We never stop to think, well, why do we have to get the Brillo out to clean the scummy ring that sits there on the water edge? And that, that's the early formation of a biofilm. So the, the studies show that basically bacteria float into the water system. And as soon as they hit a hard substrate, the same occurs in our body. So it hits the gut lining, right? You eat, the baby has comes through the vaginal tract, hopefully, and then, or the early secretions of the mother and then the breast milk or formula start to form the early biofilm in the infant. And so the bacteria within about a few hours of hitting the hard substrate start to make this polymeric substance or it's called an EPS, which basically puts them into like a little slimy cocoon. And then that matures in its formation and they are fascinating multi-organismal relationships. I mean, they are buzzing with life. The fungi do one thing, the parasites do something else. The bacteria are are the most sacrificial. They can either live there if they like them and they get booted if they don't. So there's some bacteria that can live easily in biofilm of the candida organism. And then they crosstalk, they feed each other. So one will give some nutrient to the other one to let it stay there. I mean, it's wild what's going on inside us. 
And then this all goes out into our blood. They can send metabolites out to the blood and then talk to other biofilms in the body. And that is in fact, so this is where I love it. If you change your diet, like say you take gluten and sugar out, you regulate the candida in your gut favorably. That talks to the lungs. There's a different one in the lung, which is aspergillus. And that's why asthma gets better. So what used to be the lunatic fringe thinking that asthmatics should be cleaning up their diet, and I was one of them, <laughs> was now their science to say, hey, if you fix your candida, then your lungs are going to get better. That's what's so cool. Isn't that cool? So cool. And the one, other one that I love, love thinking about is this whole biofilm is tryptophan, plays a big role in the body's ability to control infection. So we evolved. Turkey, what makes you Yes, <laughs> yes. Tryptophan is, is one of the most essential amino acids for bacteria to survive and they can't make it. There's only one kind of bacteria that can make it. They depend on ours. But here's why this is so important. If you have bacteria that are out of balance in your gut, we turn on an enzyme to get rid of the tryptophan. It's like a little trap door. It's called endolamine. So we dump our tryptophan to try to kill off the bacteria. Guess what happens? There's no tryptophan to make serotonin. And that's where rising rates of depression and anxiety are coming from because everybody's got these bacteria in their gut that are starving them of their tryptophan. Wow. So how do you treat that? Once we get the gut, so I'm very conservative. Like I don't take anybody off their drugs when they come. We keep everybody on the same stuff. We go through our model. And then once we finish, then we start cherry picking the things that may no longer be needed. So I have patients that are on like SSRIs. They'll stay there until we think that their tryptophan metabolism is coming back. And maybe we do blood. There are certain tests we could look at to see that. And then we'll start lowering their Prozac or whatever to help get them off. And are you, or do you use stool tests for this? Do you use your, your blood in the slide thing, that German technique? Like, Yeah, we have a lot of different tests. And I, because I've been in the space for a long time, I know all the functional medicine tests. So we, we could do anything from saliva to stool, functional stool assays, some of the better stool tests to see the different bacteria. I look at the molds, mycotoxins. I love looking at urine, blood. There's options for each one of them. I don't do a million because it just gets to be too much data and it's distracting. So we pick the most representative and then we get people through the main algorithm and then we'll start pulling extra if we need them. I imagine by this point, you've seen a lot of similar cases, right? Because one, you cure someone of chronic Lyme, they tell their friend, then they come in and autoimmune stuff, et cetera. How, I've always wondered how good physicians do this, but how do you not let the data that you've aggregated and analyzed that you are coupling with one set of symptoms not make you quickly like pre-diagnose or pre-judge? Like, how do you keep fresh eyes on everybody? It's a great question. I work on myself very, I do a lot of self-work to keep myself as grounded and as my energy field as clean as possible. So I'm doing the least amount of projection. See, a lot of medicine is governed 
by, well, humanity is governed by ego, right? It's very hard to fully extract ego from any transaction. And that is the most important thing to do when you're offering medical care. Because the minute your ego gets in the way or in the, in the equation, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. You're doing it because you want to feel good, not because you're necessarily attending to the needs of the patient. I mean, most of the time, those two go together. But when they don't, that's when you're in trouble, meaning you're pushing someone to do something because of your, for your own reasons. So I'm really, really careful as best I can about taking my ego out of the equation. What is your practice to do that? You mean my meditation practice? Yeah. Or what are the ways that you, what are the practices that you use to diminish your ego or to keep it in check? Probably just the awareness of it. It's like, I almost go out of myself and look in and, and critique myself and say, to try to understand what my motivations are. And I will really spend time analyzing because there's sadness in, in some outcomes. When you're dealing with tremendously, really hideous cases sometimes, things are not always going to go the way you want them. So I'm very, very spiritual, meaning we are no one's in control. We all know that. But you know, you want to be, as a physician, you want to be able to guarantee outcome and you cannot. And sometimes the greatest amount of strength comes from holding course when there aren't answers, when there isn't the best outcome around the corner. But those patients need that support. They need you to show up, be honest, not pull the wool over and come up with something just to come up with it. It's much better. So those are the moments. These are, there's such powerful interpersonal moments. Somebody, it does happen every once in a while. Somebody isn't, it's not going exactly how we want it or something, a curveball gets thrown in and it is very hard to stay grounded. And, and I'm, a smile is coming on my face because I could have answered your question very differently, which is just this last year, it was literally this time last year that I, I, I have tremendous emotional they're not my emotional ups and downs, but I have emotional ups and downs with the patient load that I carry. And I try not to project that onto my husband and my children and all that. So I literally got this hundred pound German shepherd from Germany a year ago that's named Zeus. And he sits like six inches from me in the office. He goes everywhere with me. He goes in my car. He's like my man. And that dog has been like a, a godsend because he he just absorbs. He's this big, sweet liver, like big liver eyes. And I just, I get a lot of nourishment from him. So he, he does help now. <laughs> That's so nice. An emotional support dog. I have a big giant shepherd as well. He's, oh, you do? Oh yeah. 106 pounds. I oh. totally get it. <laughs> oh, I wanted to ask you about your proprietary testing that you're working on. I'm really fascinated if you don't mind talking about it. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, I just, just for confidentiality, I have to be kind of on the surface, but let's, let's leave it at, there is much more known about the microbiome in the scientific arena than what we are able to currently test for through blood work. So my single goal, let's say in the next five years, but quite frankly, I hope it's three, is to bring forth a way of analyzing the biome through the blood in a standard format 
that any patient in this country could get themselves. Like that's my mission in the next three years. And that is with studying certain elements of what I'm going to call biomarkers that have been sourced from different current testing models, but then I've been researching ways in which to improve things so we can get better information. So let me just, we talked about the biofilms. Understanding biofilm presence is very important. How much we're holding in the biome, how well the body is detoxifying, what rate the body's detoxifying, how much inflammation is emanating from the different biofilm communities. So that's how what, what I can say in a very general sense is like the gut brain axis is so powerful. So bacteria tend to project into the brain with depression. So if there's bacterial inflammation related to bacteria, that's how it presents. Inflammation related to fungi presents with anxiety. Anything from garden variety, anxiety disorder, all the way up to panic attacks and everything in between. How do you treat fungi? We give a lot of herbal therapies because we don't have great pharmaceuticals for broad spectrum antifungal. There's a lot of resistance that develops. So I try to stay away from them if I can. There's a certain kind of IV treatment. It's called butyrate that we will give to break fungi down. It's really powerful. It's an anti-inflammatory and it works beautifully for patients. So we work through the different elements and then the parasites last but not least, this is wild. Parasites project into the brain with a lot of our anger, rage issues, and then sort of altered thought patterns. So when people have paranoid thoughts and things like that, it can, it can be parasitic. The parasite physiology of our biome is barely being touched. And it's so real. The amount of parasites people carry, and I, I've treated them now for years, I can see them, people bring them to me. So I don't need to be told that they're there. <laughs> That's a, Yes, wow. yes, it's crazy, crazy. That's intense. So, and that, that parasites are the lead cause of chronic fatigue. And that's a very misunderstood phenomenon. They suppress our immunity to viruses. So we, we see the biggest shifts in patients' energy levels and brain fog and stuff like that when, we'll, when we treat I them. I too, because all, well, I don't know about all, but many ancient or there, there are lots of cultures who have done, who have recipes for parasite cleanses, like in so many third world countries, for example, to this day, or you hear about milk cleanse or there with yeah. herbs, there are so many, there are a lot of alternative treatments for parasites that are kind of in indigenous culture cultures. Do you know about those? I know a bit. I, I actually, I'll tell you a funny story. This, this, this in part pushed me a little bit many years ago. So we had a, one of our nannies was from Grenada and I came home from work, the boys, I have three boys, the oldest one that was in preschool at the time. And he had started grinding his teeth. Now, how many people in the US grind their teeth, right? Like tons of people grind their teeth, night guards. So she pulls me aside when I come home and she says, Mrs. Gedrick, she says, I don't want to offend you because I know you're a doctor, but I noticed that your son is grinding his teeth. And in our country, we give bush tea because parasites will cause the children to do this. So I was working with herbs at the time. I mean, I still do. And we have tons of herbs for parasites. I put them on a pediatric herbal formula for parasites. Two days later, stopped grinding his teeth. 
So I said, oh my God, what are we missing? I mean, we are missing so much. So then I had a patient just after that. This is also something that happens to me in my practice. I'll get like a rash of the same problem. Like three or four patients will come in with very similar stories right at the same moment. And there's some teaching pearl that I have to know in order to figure out how to help them. But I, I get enough of them in at one time that it like pushes me to kind of go and do the research. That's when I started really looking seriously at the parasites. And then I had this one woman who was just crawling with them and kept bringing them to me. And I kept sending them to the lab and lab, just a regular lab kept coming back saying there's no parasite. I was like, I'm sending you a worm. I mean, how can you tell? So I quickly figured that we were not getting good information with our tests and we had to start. So that was what started the journey. So how are you identifying parasites now? So now I do a lot of empiric work. I worked with a specialist in tropical medicine in New York City to get a lot of guidance for years. We have a test that we do that helps give me the guidance I need. When I say empiric, so when you're remodeling the biome, you're using slightly different principles than when you're diagnosing an infection. So I tell this to patients all the time because it's really, I at least want to be as clear as I can be academically. So if you had a patient that went off to Africa and got diarrhea, you need to know the specific worm that they got because you have to pick the right medicine. But when you're taking a biome that has been dysregulated with a lot of inflammation and fungus and all these other things, you're, I'm using a generalized approach and that involves a rotation of parasite medications, more of an empiric nature to restore the immunology and lower inflammation and all the rest of it. So I go between both. And what kinds of herbs are good for parasites? Not that someone should do this at home or maybe they should, but I'm just curious. Wormwood is one. It's the parasite herbs are really, it's interesting. They're very conserved through different cultures. So they, they obviously are well-known. Black walnut is one of the best. Artemisinin is another, artisanuate. Clove, cumin. So it's really fascinating. A lot of the the, the spices that we, you know, I, I talk about this too, which is how did we get this way? Well, yeah. one of the ways that we got this way is because the natural, what are called vermifuges, raw ginger, wasabi, clove, cumin, like things that we in the other world where they take spices more seriously and there's someone in the kitchen with a mortar and a pestle, that level of spice is going to do a lot to depopulate the gut of these worms. That's and awesome. we don't do that. How do you, I mean, cause obviously everybody can't come and see you right in your office. So how, but can you tell us a little bit about like, what are the nutritional, what's the nutritional plan that you tend to put people on that really work generally and really start to improve the way that people feel? A couple things. Number one, I like food-based vitamins quite a bit. So I try to get everybody on a food-based multi. There is a difference. We use vitamins that are synthetic, but those are truly nutraceuticals instead of replacing food, which is critical. So, So some of the recent studies on the biome have shown that the way to regulate inflammation is actually the food that is the hitting the receptor. It's not the nutrients. So we, we need food for two reasons. We need food for the nutrients, but we actually need the 
food itself, like broccoli needs to be eaten instead of just the nutrients from the broccoli. So this is a very big distinction. So we try to move people to food-based vitamins if we can. When you say when you say food-based vitamin, you mean that vitamins that are made from food or eating yeah. the food that contains the vitamins? Both, both. So increasing farm to table as much as we the stuff, the junk that we can get out. I tell patients if you can't figure out how to make a food in your own kitchen, you probably shouldn't be eating it, right? If it's like, how did a Dorito ever? how does it ever get made? Right. Forget it. Like the same thing with reading a label. If you get to three lines in and you can't pr- pronounce any of the ingredients, that that's all chemical that's going into your body. So, okay. So back to the vitamins, phospholipids and essential oils are not well understood. When I, when I say that there's a supplement we give orally called phosphatidylcholine that plays a very big role in helping keep patients detoxified, helping keeping the cellular membrane strong. It met with a little bit of bad press a few years ago and it had more to do with choline. So some people kind of got off, but that research really wasn't well done. Let me say that. So we do use that supplement. That's a huge, it's called PC, but that's a huge thing for us. People are overdoing it with fish oil there is a lot of study coming out about the importance of clean omega-6s. Everybody's been taught that the threes are the good guys. Sixes are critical. And now it turns out a whole article just published on the impact that one of the primary sixes has on controlling biofilm formation. So the sixes are impacting gut health. So that is a ba- it's a balancing act. And so we try to get patients. I like flax oil. I prefer that to the fish oils if we have to supplement because you can overdo the fish oils very quickly. So I try to get people, if they're open to eating salmon, trying to do a salmon once a week would be a great way to get enough fish oil in their diet. And then we use another kind of oil that has a balance of balance oil. It's omega-6 and three minerals. Another thing that definitely not enough attention paid. So minerals are stripped from our soil. So our foods aren't giving us uh, minerals today. So we talk a lot about water supply and making sure people are getting a good mineral water. Can you put, you know, Himalayan sea salt in water? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. We cook with that. I love Himalayan sea salt. So those are the main, we have like a mainstay detox product we use. It's just herbal. It's got a lot of rosemary. It's like garden variety herbs but that keeps the liver, kidney, lymphatic system, blood systems cleaner, just helps them excrete toxins faster. And then we use those, oh, and B vitamins. So like your followers would certainly know what the MTHFR gene is all about and having that genetic test, understanding most of us need supplemental Bs to help us get rid of toxins fast enough. Yeah. I want to talk about your book. So it's called A Nation of Unwell, What's Gone Wrong? So exactly, like what what has gone wrong? I mean, I know that it's hard to distill it down because it's everything from food supply, environmental toxins, but how do you think we've gotten to this place where so many Americans feel bad, tired, chronic fatigue, 
down, depressed, very on, on, on the spectrum of, of so many things. I, I, I don't think people feel vibrant and light. And so how, how have we gotten here? It, it is really a confluence of a number of things. So in the early part of the book, what I'm describing is that the, the, the allopathic system of medicine really took hold when we discovered designer pharmaceuticals. So penicillin saved lives, right? Saved millions of lives. There were a couple decades where that was almost the only trick. And then we started developing erythromycin, biaxin. These are newer antibiotics. And that was probably the beginning of the impact on the biome at the level that we're starting to see the impact today. Before that, if you just turn on the TV and look at the shows we were watching when we grew up, life was so clean and different then, right? Um, the milk bottles were in bottles, right? They came from the farm. Pasteurized or not, it was still different. And there weren't 18 forms of milk and then milk alternatives and and all of the different bread products. I mean, it's a combination. So women left the home, they were working, foods got more processed, microwaves became normal to have dinner out of. Then we ended relying on all these drugs. We stopped. Here's a big thing. We turned our trust over to big pharma, right? The average American believes there is going to be a drug to cure them. If, if they get sick. So in other words, I have a relative that died of the Spanish flu. He was, he was on my Italian side. He was the star of the family that came over from Italy and they lost him. They lost him to the pneumonia because he went out when he was wet. He had a wet head. He had to help a neighbor some. So I can't remember the details of the story, but that general idea was he got a chill. Everybody knew at that time, you get a chill, you're going to get pneumonia. But how many kids today are running around like I, I have a heart attack when I see my fr kids' friends. We're in really cold weather right now. And they've got like a t-shirt on. And they're, so the idea is that there wasn't the, the respect for taking care of the body any longer. It was, you can eat whatever you want. You come out of a microwave. There's always going to be a pill to fix it. And that's the momentum that's carried us for the last 40 years. And at the same time, there's been... 50,000 chemicals released into the environment since World War II, and not a single study showing the toxic effects of them together. So what scientists call this is mitochondrial hormesis, it's looking at if you give somebody that's not toxic a low degree of toxins, you actually improve mitochondrial function because you're causing the mitochondria to adapt to stress. It's like homeopathics, same right. Right. But we've surpassed that at this point. And so now what we're seeing is, is the impact of these toxins at the cellular level and the host organism is not getting rid of them any longer. And they're getting into the genome. They're being passed on from generations. So we've got a lot of catching up to do. And, and as an unraveling of what's happened over the last 50 plus years to our health. But unfortunately, the reason that I, the book was hard to write and it was hard because I wanted the tone to come across the right way. I'm not an anti-anything. I'm, I'm a pragmatist and a scientist. So I just want things to be understood for what they are 
And I genuinely believe that people can be well and made to feel well and be happy. And I want that for so many. And so that's, I'm hoping that those that take the time to read it realize that they don't have to have the chronic things they're told they have. They're all just things that can be changed. I love that because it gives agency to the patient or the person. It gives, puts the power of healing into your own hands, just based on choices that you feel free to make for yourself or the questions that you feel free to ask for yourself. Well, I could literally ask you questions for the rest of the day, but I'm going (laughs) to let you go. And thank you so, so much. What a great informative hour I've had with you. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to my chat with Dr. Christine Gedrick. For more information from Christine, pick up a copy of her book, A Nation of Unwell. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.